I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi friends, Odd and Rags here. We are super proud to announce partnering with the badass Misty Maven from Gotham Roller Derby to promote Stop Stigma. So Stop Stigma is Misty Maven's effort to spread awareness about suicide and mental other mental health conditions like depression um, in the derby community. The three of us have talked about this and we think that's a really important issue to bring up, um, especially with our roller derby family. If you would like to see the designs and purchase a shirt, tank top, snapback hat, or maybe something else to support the effort, you can check it out at MissTMaven.com. That's M-I-S-S-T-E-A-M-A-V-E-N.com. And we will also keep a link on our Instagram and Facebook page at Frau Pau Podcast. Thank you for supporting us in this effort and definitely don't, don't be a dick. dick. Today we're going to interview Joy Gantor, a very close friend of mine who also happens to be moderately terrifying, incredibly sexy, and specializes in occupational therapy and mental health. She sounds awesome. She's pretty awesome. I'm giving her a short introduction because I think she can talk more on why how, she's awesome. Yeah, how cool she is. Yeah. Okay, well, let's give her a chance. Okay. Yeah, so Joyce of Reason, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So uh, I'm an occupational therapist. I fell in love with occupational th- occupational therapy at the ripe age of 15. Um, I was in and out of PT as a kid. I was an active child and very accident prone as well. What? So in and out of, I know not much has changed at all. <laughs> um, 
So that's why you play roller derby, right? That's why we get along so well. (laughs) Um, So beyond that, I was also uh, volunteering with a music therapy group focused on children with autism spectrum disorder. And that's the person that pointed me in the direction of occupational therapy. And I actually fell in love. Um, I, I interviewed OTs in school and like really fell in love with pediatric occupational therapy, which obviously is not where I ended up by any stretch of imagination. So um, can you tell me at least what occupational yes. therapy is? Yes, of course. Uh, occupational therapy is like PT's cooler younger brother. Uh, that's kind of how I describe it to people. It, we focus on helping people do the activities that they want to do, whether it's changing them, changing the environment or changing the activity. So whereas PT focuses on uh, the person being able to walk 50 feet, we focus on, well, can the person walk to the fridge and make themselves a sandwich after we leave? That's kind of important. Yeah. And I mean, PT's made a ton of strides in the last couple of years to make them more holistic based. But OT uh, has this cool, fun standpoint where we don't just look at the person. We look at changing maybe the activity or we, we do a lot of environmental changes to make it more functional for the person and give them a better uh, independence level, shall we say. Um, and so you said that you are not in pediatric OT. Um, so what do you do now? Right now, I'm actually in home health occupational therapy. Before that, I was doing uh, severe and chronic mental illness at a long-term facility in New York. So that's where I was for three years. What was that like? I was never bored. <laughs> uh, that's kind of my my starting off. My, like I was I. And I absolutely loved my job there. Um, there were definitely very difficult days and there were definitely really good days. I spent half of my time running groups with 10 to 12 people, uh, whether it was an art group, a coping skills group, um, a learning how to live in the communities group. I did a lot of like community skills training. So how to ride a bus how to budget appropriately, how to cook, how, uh, things like that. And then my other half of the week, I did the quote-unquote more traditional occupational therapy activities. So treating people with a brachial plexus injury. What's that? Uh, the brachial plexus is essentially a, a huge bunch of nerves in your armpit. So it's real prone to injury. That sounds horrible. Yeah. So you'll get like a lot of, it's like essentially the arm version of sciatica. Yeah, how does one how does one get that? Like, do you have to like run into a wall with your armpit? I mean, there's a lot of ways to get it. Um, this person got it while fighting. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot of you know strengthening and trying to get the nerves to work the best they can. Um, I was gonna circle back to you were saying about working in the long term mental. Um, healthcare facility and you are working with people with like chronic mental health issues, correct? Um, Yeah. So can you talk a little bit on how mental health therapy has changed? So, I mean, I can talk about my experience. Um, I was there for about three years and I've also done a lot of reading about um, mental health treatment prior to that. I don't know uh, how much you guys have looked into this, but there's in the last 80 years, there's been a huge push for deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these big institutions are closing 
um, and getting people into the least restrictive environment, which is awesome and great and wonderful, except for a lot of times there's not those community catches, which is why there was this huge bump in homelessness, especially when this started in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, we can um, blame um, Reagan for that. Yes, exactly. So these uh, the hospital I was in is, has been open for about 100 years. And actually, if you guys are super interested in it, uh, the Snake Pit by Mary Jane Ward. And oh Ashley my God, I fucking book. love that book. The The movie, for anyone mm-hmm. that hasn't seen it, is a like an old school black and white movie. It's really good. I mean, I went to school for social work, so we watched it in class. I don't know how people can access it, but it's like, it's, it's awesome. So I have a really quick story. Oh, okay. Odd has a really quick story. <laughs> no. Okay. So, so when I actually, this is not in the United States, but I think it's just funny. Um, so I lived in Hungary for a while. And um, mm-hmm. when I was there, or right before I got there, um, they had, they were also going through a sort of a deinstitutionalization um, with uh, mental health facilities. And so they um, closed one of the largest in the, well, the largest in the country because um, I was living near Budapest and, um, or in Budapest. And this facility was right outside of it. Um, and so they'd closed it and then they sold the building to um, Scientology. And now it's a Scientology, ginormous fucking Scientology church. And also they just like, as in like this week, outlawed homelessness. So there's a bunch of mentally ill people and hungry who can't have services and now are no longer allowed to be homeless. They outlawed sleeping on the street. Anyways, it's a horrible story. But I'm afraid, I'm like very afraid that America is going in that direction. Well, I mean, I I know that actually um, 20% of state prisoners have a serious mental illness. Yep. Serious mental illness is qualified as interferes with activities of daily life. Yep. So, and that doesn't even include, you know, the one in five adults who have not as pervasive mental illness. So 20% is a huge statistic. And I actually, I uh, worked on the CPL floor, the people who were uh, deemed criminally insane mm-hmm. by the courts, which were really interesting cases. Yeah. I think that's something that I'm really interested in. We uh, just as like a person that's, has mental health um, struggles and then also studied in the field. Um, it's so interesting how they, they they determine whether or not someone's criminally insane, like that process in general, and then also like how they treat them. Um, because a lot of times that, that, you know, they're deemed like un, like they can't be rehabilitated. And like, what does that look like? You know? Yeah. If you're interested, um, there's a book called Crazy by Pete Early. Mm-hmm. It's a, he was a writer for like the New York Times or some, like some bougie journal and his son had a psychotic break and, but their first psychotic break, they were break, they broke and enter into a house and the people pressed charges. So it's like his mm-hmm. experience with the judicial system mm-hmm. with the, with the son who was newly diagnosed with this. I want to say the son has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in mental health and the justice system, it's, very eye-opening and it's written uh the son committed the incident offense in florida mm-hmm. and florida's arguably not one of the better states to have mental illness in. yeah that's where i'm so from really and like, our oh, producer's also from florida yeah, it's, it's the worst of the worst as far as mental health from the justice system if you're interested i am i mean this this is totally a sidebar just for myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So moving swiftly on from that deinstitutionalization. 
Yeah, so we we did this whole deinstitutionalization movement, which is awesome, except for the lack of community support. So a lot of our people, you know, do cycle back pretty quickly, unfortunately, because when they get discharged, I mean, there's just not enough support for them. You know, they'll be in a home and there's, it takes a couple weeks for them to be seen by a social worker, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist. Uh, New York actually just started implementing these ACT teams, which are really interesting. They're these uh, crisis teams, and there's everyone on it that you could possibly want. And they just have cases, and they'll go out to the people's homes. So there's a, people who are in the ACT program have a much lower incidence of coming back into the hospital because they have such intensive case management. Wow. Is that like um like wraparound services? Yeah, so and then and, and they do the warm handoffs or the ACT team. Uh, people from the ACT team will actually visit the person in the hospital for a month or two before they're getting discharged, so that way they're comfortable with them. It's a much warmer handoff, and that's really the basis of a good discharge because you're far more likely to stay in the community when you're not meeting all these new people in a month and you don't know which doctor does what and you don't know who's in charge of what and you don't know who to go to get your meds refilled. Well, it's like you're also providing the inpatient with a support system instead of just like dropping them exactly. off on the side of the street. What It's almost like supporting people with mental health actually helps them recover. That's or very, cre- very or, weird or, and wrong. Or, or, <laughs> that's a completely new thought to me. I'm not really sure how I feel. <laughs> Maybe recovery is not the right word, but at least like get themselves a better into it a, gives better, them a sp- better chance of staying in the yes. community. Wow. Support. It's like really important. So weird. Um, but after the deinstitutionalization movement, we were pushed toward the medical model because all things are a medical model, which we are currently recovering from and making more of a holistic model in mental health treatment, which has been really awesome. Uh, so the treatment is based on the symptoms versus the diagnosis. So, you know, is it a coping skills issue or is it a medication management issue instead of, oh, this person's these, you know, 15 people have schizophrenia, let's all put them in their rehab group therapy together because they have the same diagnosis rather than the same issues. Yeah, so we're trying to move to like more of a holistic standpoint um, as far as treatment, like looking at people where their issues are and what's keeping them in the hospital. Yeah, just because they're in the DSM together doesn't mean that they belong together. Exactly. Like, you know, whatever. We all know someone with some kind of disorder and we know someone with the same kind of disorder and they present so completely differently. So treating someone based on, you know, where their deficits are rather than where their diagnosis is has been a huge push within the mental health treatment. And I know uh, like peer advocates have been awesome for this. They're one of the people in the mental health team who, you know, went through the system and came out the other side. And so they'll go to meetings and kind of advocate for clients. And they'll also help with the warm handoff. So they'll keep a client from when they're first admitted through six months after discharge, which is really cool. Um, so in talking about this sort of thing, how do you work with the individual versus the illness? So how do you kind of separate the those two from each other? I, so, I mean, obviously the first thing that come to, comes to my mind is safety is always like the number one concern for the client, for me, for other staff, for other patients. Um, so if I know like a client, Maybe, like whatever, maybe the client had some kind of episode yesterday, whether it was an illusion or whether it was just a bad day and they, whatever, they swung at me the day before. I try to have someone else in the room who I know has a good rapport with them. So that way they we can start to rebuild that trust again. 
it's also going in every day with a fresh mindset. It's always the, it's always the illness. I mean, it's not always the illness. Some people are just mean, but nine times out of 10, it's the illness. It's the voices that are in their head are just extra loud that day telling them to attack people. Like it's, you know, their medications are making them feel awful and they just need something to give them some kind of release. It's really important to try to create that kind of boundary and understand that, I mean, people with mental illness are, are far more likely to ever hurt themselves than, than they are to hurt someone else. And once they are starting to hurt other people, chances are it's because they've hurt themselves in the process and they just can't handle it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a hard time making those boundaries for myself, like with anxiety. Like, am I just a complete bitch or is it is it my anxiety? Like I yeah. And I can't imagine what that's like when it comes to like those like physical reactions. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's also like trusting the team. Like and I don't know if you have someone in your life, but like you kind of need a mirror like rags has zero problem telling me you're being crazy today. Like, go take a sit. Yeah, word. Which is wonderful. And that's like what you need. You need a mirror. And like, it's the same thing for when you're working in mental health because you need you need to trust your team that, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so took a swing at me yesterday. Do you mind running point on the group and I'll take a back seat? Or, you know, do you, do you mind trying to get them to go take a shower because right now our rapport isn't great and I'm working on trying to build our rapport back up so that way I can get there again. So, you know, having a mirror, having a good team is really helpful in that as well because then you have people to back you up. So when you're not having a great day with one of the clients, you can have someone else who is on a better footing with them. So that way all all places go where they need to. Yeah, I think that's really important and you know, it's good to know that you have a team of people to support you because like as mental health staff, the staffers that, you know, work in these places also need teams of people to support them because it's not an easy job. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, changing gears just a little bit. um, Could you also talk about Mm -hmm. uh, sexuality and mental health specifically in long-term stay hospitals? Yeah. So uh, I, I have, a lot of experience with sexuality. I It's a passion near and dear to me, uh, whether it's mental health, spinal cord injury, cognitive deficit. But with mental health, the issue that we run into a lot is the medications aren't, the side effects are really detrimental, uh, which causes a lot of non-compliance, actually. Antipsychotics, which are also used for borderline and, and uh, PTSD, generally, and I granted I was working at a state facility, so I had a lot of the older psych meds. The new ones are much better. Like the older psych meds cause weight gain, incontinence, and impotence. Like those three are the big reasons why people stop taking them. And all three kind of destroy your sex drive as well. So when we're discharging a 30-year-old guy, it's it's heartbreaking to see them come back, but they're like, sorry, I didn't want to take my meds. Like I'm a 30-year-old guy. I'm not wearing depends in the community. Like, sorry. And it's like absolutely heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like, you know, it it gives them some sort of it takes away their self-actualization it kind of takes away like part of their being especially when you're a 30 year old dude right I mean it's like I mean this is not the same but like when my grandma was old older she 
um, you know, they sh- people tend to hit a point where they just they are not safe to drive anymore because their you know memory is going or their sight is going or whatever. And we had to take her keys away from her and like literally sell her car so she couldn't drive it. And she was so upset. Um, and it was like taking away her freedom. And like I can see how this would take away someone's like freedom to just like be like a normal human quote unquote normal yes quote unquote normal or just like a functioning yeah. adult like it takes away your independence yeah we, we i'm a big fan of the quote unquote neurotypical because no one's normal um but yes and absolutely and also on top of that generally about half of our people are going you know home to their family members and half of our people are going into group homes but a lot of times, like, this is one thing that they can tr- control whether or not they're taking meds or not. Also, I don't, I can tell you it's very difficult to try to convince someone who's manic and on top of the world and thinks that they're Jesus himself to take medication. Like, why would you? You feel wonderful. You feel absolutely right. phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I know with just, some personality disorders as well, um, like, I have some experience with people who have borderline personality disorder. And when you're high functioning, like... It's none of it is your problem. And there's no reason why you have to take medication because like it's everybody else's fault. Yeah, exactly. And then even on like the other end of the spectrum, like most people who have schizophrenia have some kind of hallucinations and delusions. Like paranoia is pretty, pretty common. Like, why am I going to take this thing that you're handing me? Like, I don't know what's in that. I don't know how that's going to make me feel. And the first thing you get these side effects, you get them for a while. And it does it. It could take weeks for the actual therapeutic benefit to kick in. So all your feelings awful and, you know, you're gaining weight and you're starting to urinate on yourself in bed and you're not getting any of the pros. Like it, it's very difficult to keep people on medication because of these things. It takes weeks for these meds to kick in and make you feel like, you know, you can start getting up and doing things again. It just kind of reminds me of when I was going through the revolving door of migraine meds. And I know migraine meds are not the same as a lot of the higher dosage meds, but migraine meds, as Joy and Odd both know, is um, usually a mixture of anti-anxiety, antidepressants, um, uh, high cholesterol medication. It's it's like this gambit. There's no there's nothing that's actually for migraines. They throw glitter at a wall. And <laughs> right. But sick. when I'm taking these meds. I'm taking these meds to combat the symptoms of headache, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, um, just like the whole like being discombobulated. And then I look at the side effects on these med bottles, like with my Cymbalta that I was taking for that hot minute that I'm sure Joy very much remembers. Um, oh my God. That was, was a, a yeah, that was a rough day. month. Um, but like on it, it's like side effects, dizziness, headaches, migraines nausea like why am i why is a person with migraines taking this medication to treat my migraines that has the same exact side effects of me having my migraine so like looking at it from just like being somebody with chronic migraines disease like it doesn't make sense for me to take these meds i can only imagine what people who actually need these meds to be functional feel like well and just like I don't know, sometimes I get really sick of taking my meds and just like the thought that I am going to have to take these meds for forever. Like that is so, like I, it's so disheartening. It's really disheartening. Like I'm going to have to fucking take these forever because I am always going to be anxious and I know what I feel like when I get off of them. But like, 
I mean, sometimes it feels empowering because I'm taking care of myself, but a lot of the times I'm like, I have to take these every day forever. Exactly. And, and imagine if you didn't have that insight like that. And that's kind of what the difference between, you know, severe versus not as severe mental illness looks like, because the people who don't have that insight are the people who they're like, I don't really want to take these meds. And, and if the biggest way we know whether or not someone's going to make in the community is their medication compliance. And like, that's just cut or dry, but it's, it's difficult watching, you know, I, I mean, I see a lot more, uh, I just ha I have more experience treating people with bipolar and schizophrenia because I was at a long-term hospital. So it was people with more uh, pervasive diagnoses, but you know, all you need is, I, I could tell you, we had one guy come in right before I left. We had discharged a month earlier and he's like, sorry, I had a colonoscopy, so I couldn't take medication for three days. And then I didn't want to anymore because the delusions are back that, you know, the medication was poisoning him and, you know, the hallucinations back and, you know, sometimes they're fun. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're awful, but sometimes they're good. Man, that must be so rough to watch as, you know, somebody on the staff and you're watching these, <laughs> the revol like these patients just come out the door and then take the revolving door back in and just like cycle in and out, in and out. And it's definitely heartbreaking because our, so uh, our facility, we don't take direct admissions. We take people uh, from hospitals who have been there for a couple weeks on like an acute psych floor or maybe uh, for, from jail because while they were picked up for, you know, whatever, they start exhibiting symptoms or they disclose they have an illness and then we get them. So like we don't take any direct admissions. So I know that, you know, while we discharged him a month ago, for two weeks of those, he was in an acute psych floor like he he spent two weeks discharged like it's a very difficult life I think this kind of brings yeah. us to our next question of why is treatment important and then the follow-up question is how can we help loved ones get the treatment they need or even ourselves like how can we help others or ourselves get to that point and why do we need to do this so Nine times out of 10, like they, they know how they want help, especially once uh, someone's stable, you know, they, they know where their deficits are. It's not, and, and most people, once they're stable, it's not that they want to stop taking meds, that they, it's more of, oh, I sometimes forget them or, oh, I missed my doctor's appointment this month. So my script ran out and I don't want to call him because I don't want him to be mad. So asking whoever or, you know, making sure that yourself, like you stay on top of that stuff because that's the quote unquote easy stuff because besides that, mental health just changes on the regular and you very well might need a medication change. But if you can at least stay on what you know works, that'll be a huge help, whether it's creating a pill box or you know, there's 101 apps to help you remember medication at this point or making sure that your loved one always have a seven-day uh, seven supply of medication, especially as the winter months come up, because we all know no one's going to CVS in three feet of snow. I have to put my medication by the coffee maker. Oh. I never take it in the mornings. Exactly. And everyone's got like that one place where they have to, like, I could tell you, I my medication's on my nightstand and I plug my phone in and I, and I take it. Like that's, that's how I remember. That's how I remember for years. But like lots of people, it's at the coffee. It's, you know, next to the dog food because you know you're not going to forget to feed the dog. 
it's, but it's finding wherever that works and, and keeping it there. Um, so what is your personal experience with mental health and therapy? My personal experience, um, I went into school thinking that I absolutely adored pediatrics. And I, and I do on some standpoint. I love peeps, can't stand the parents. But so part of our schooling is we, we shadow OTs across the entire umbrella of OT. So that's skilled nursing facilities, uh, home health like I'm in now, it's pediatrics, it's hand therapy, and it's psych. So I was actually on the acute psych floor and I was enjoying my time there. I was there for two weeks. I had a wonderful preceptor, but I saw my first code. Um, A code is a psychiatric emergency. So I saw someone, she was admitted from the ER the night before. She woke up. She wasn't sure where she was on top of everything else. She was detoxing and she, you know, started coming after staff and other patients. And I kind of realized that that's where people need help the most when they're so confused or so disoriented that they start attacking other people and themselves. Like everyone wants to play with kids or help out their grandma, but it's the one in five people experience mental health and one in 25 experience serious mental health that affects their life. And those people are so put away that no one really knows what to do with them or what, how to deal with them. Like, I could tell you, like, I have a very good friend with bipolar disorder with psychosis. And God bless her. She, she got through school. She did, you know, what she needed to do. But it was a holler. And it, there was not nearly enough support for her, for us as her support systems from anyone without fail. We hospitalized her once a year because there was just not enough support. They, they held her for three days and then sent her on her merry way when she had drugs. Mental people with mental illness are the most forgotten about population that the United States still has. Sorry. That's my soapbox. (laughs) No, I mean, I I just like, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but it's just that, you know, people can't see it. It's invisible and it's so hard. And people, we get people who suffer with mental health issues, they get blamed for (laughs) their illness. Like, but you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't get blamed for like getting cancer. You wouldn't get blamed for like. I don't know. I can't think of it's just so stupid. Like, it's not my fault that I have anxiety. It's just another like chronic health issue. And I can't imagine what people with these more severe mental health illnesses experience, like in terms of stigma, that is really what bothers me because yeah, like, cause you, you know, you, people have psychosis and or they have delusions or, you know, they, like you're saying, like react like physically towards people. Um, and it's just, it's so misunderstood. Like I could tell you like, um, but I, I understand that I worked in a very niche part of mental health and by no stretch imagination is this everyone, but I had, I have people that were hospitalized for the last 25 years. I, I can't even imagine not being able to go outside by myself when I want to for 25 years. That's just 
It's sad to think about. You're taking down the room. Sorry. I can go and talk about sexuality and mental health because I have like way more stuff to talk about that. And then I like kind of like floated away <laughs> as per usual. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, like it, it's a, it's a sad conversation, but it's, it, it's an important conversation and we're here to have these important conversations. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that we all know at least one person that is a little bit more um, affected by mental health than other people, whether they actually should be institutionalized and aren't or have been institutionalized in the past or like are close to the they should be institutionalized. I, I think like we all know somebody who is like one of those three things. And like there's a question of how do we support them and how do we give them the love and support that they need? But also like I'm going to need support through this, too, because like, holy shit, that's a lot to take on. That's this is heavy. It's supposed to be heavy. Like we didn't think this was going to be all, you know, fun and love and happiness and giggles the entire time. And you actually brought up a really great point that, you know, and you ha- it's almost like you have to be kind of selfish. Like you have to create boundaries so that way you know that you're in check before you help anyone else. Because that's just that's the way it is. <laughs> well, that that brings up that brings up a question for me. How how has working in the mental health fields impacted your mental health? It's been difficult. I, I live with rags through most of it. And there were days I got home and I was like, grab your skates. We're going to go skate for an hour because I needed to shut off. But it's so draining. And if you don't have those boundaries that you need, it'll destroy you. Yeah, that's why I'm not in direct practice because I have poor emotional boundaries. She's right. I lived with her for most of it. And if I wasn't living with her, I was seeing her on the daily because I lived near the facility that she worked at. And we would like get out of roller derby practice and we would just take the punching bag out of my car and she would just go to town on it. Or she would get back to the apartment and she'll be like, we need to go skating. She's absolutely correct. We would go skating for like an hour. And then all of a sudden it's like, we need to skate more. We need to do this. Or she's, I would come home and she'd be like manic cooking something. Yeah, that's my, that's where I go. But I can only imagine just like not even being like not only being in the mental health field, like is frustrating and really draining, but also being in a state run facility that presents a whole host of like its own issues. But that, and then that's why it's so important to have these, uh, know where your boundaries are and know what you need in order to, I don't like live with yourself essentially, but it's just creating these healthy boundaries. Right. And the healthiest boundaries that you can create. Sorry, I can talk about sexual and mental health more. Like that's a way more fun topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, actually, I was going to ask if you are able to tell some stories without giving away, like without any HIPAA violations. Yeah, I was going to say, like, let's not break HIPAA. Like, without any HIPAA violations, do you think you'd be able to tell like a story or two? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite clients. She, she's in her seventies. She. Let me tell you, by no stretch of the imagination does um, developmental disorder or developmental delays coincide with mental illness. I mean, obviously, some people have both, but nowhere near where people give them credit for. 
my people are sharp. And that's a huge misconception a lot of people have when they walk into a facility because they, because they, whatever, you've heard these stories, you've heard all this stuff that, you know, the medication makes you dull or that, you know, they've been hospitalized forever. It's the one flew over the cuckoo's nest thing. My lady was freaking sharp. I rolled in there. This was my first job out of college. I had my internship there and then I just moved into a job. So I'm running group and this lady goes, I can't walk. And I was like, okay, I believe you. She had me believing that for three weeks. <laughs> and, and, and I'm running a fitness group. <laughs> And she told me for three weeks she couldn't walk. And I was like, okay. But she was, and then, you know, turns out she could walk and she was very smart. So I got to know her a little bit better. absolutely adore her. And we were working on our discharge. Unfortunately, it's very common that a lot of clients are afraid of discharge. Because last time they were in the community, they stopped taking their meds. They were hospitalized. Maybe a bad police experience. Maybe, you know, they fell off the boat and they started drinking again or worse or what be it. So she had zero interest in ever being discharged again. She, you know, was very clear. She wanted to die there. She was done. Not that she was done living. Like she was, she was okay, but she was okay living out the rest of her life there. She had a retirement she that plan. She was there. She was well taken care of. She's been there for years, so the staff adored her. And me being the button pusher I am, I started taking her into the community. I, you know, took her to McDonald's. I took her to the mall. And just to kind of, you know, show her, remind her what it's like to not be in a facility. Because, you know, she hadn't had a Frosty in years, and that was her favorite food. Like, you don't get to pick your own meals. You don't get to have comfort food. Or we went to the mall and she got to pick out her own shirt. I eventually got her to sign discharge papers. <laughs> First time she spelled her name wrong on purpose because she didn't want to actually get discharged. She just wanted to be left alone. So she, she's like, no, 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 I didn't sign. And she like, sp- like flipped two letters in her name. So that way the, the contract wasn't binding. I was like, the contract's not binding regardless. I was like, I want you to go. And she's like... I was like, you don't have to sign if you don't want to. And she's like, I didn't sign. See, I spelled my name wrong. <laughs> so, but I have a question. Why did she pretend that she couldn't walk for three weeks? Um, she was just to fuck with. Yeah, Joy. I was gonna say. I was like, because she was lazy, or was she just like trying to like mess with you? She was very institutionalized. So people who are institutionalized are comfortable with being in a hospital and want to stay there. So it's they don't want to make their meals. They don't want to move around they don't and that's like a lot of what I specifically was trying to work on um because when you know what when people are there for 5 10 15 years like I was showing people cell phones (laughs) and how to ride a bus and credit cards like if if you've been in a hospital this long the world's changed a lot there's there's no such thing as pay phones anymore. So how do you get back into the, how do you get back to your residence if the bus isn't running? So she was just very institutionalized. She was very comfortable where she was. So she kept uh, downplaying her achievements so that way they wouldn't make her leave, as she, as she called it. <laughs> you can't make me leave. But so all in all, we found an all-female nursing home for her to go to. 
And she is happily living in Long Island. Yay, happy ending. So it, it ends happy. Yay. But it, it took it took a while. It took a while. So thanks for listening to our interview with Gigantor. Um, we hope that you learned some really important information and um, just kind of opened your eyes to the difficulties of the mental health world in terms of treatment and um, even being a staff member trying to help take care of people who have these needs. Um, if you have any questions, comments, opinions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feel free to reach out to us at Pow podcast at gmail.com or at frau pow podcast on instagram or at frau pow podcast on facebook we don't do twitter anymore twitter is for old white men we've given up on it sorry twitterverse so thanks again for listening and remember don't don't be be a a dick. dick